This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I know a little bit about teenage boys. I know nothing about rugby, but I do know a good book when I've read it. And Rawaya Arja has done just that with her debut novel, The F Team. Welcome, Rawaya. Thank you for having me. The story starts in the Sydney suburb of Punchbowl. Why is there a threat to close down the boys' high school? Uh, So basically, these group of boys really are not taking uh, school seriously. They get into trouble a lot. I mean, the neighbouring suburbs of Punchbowl, there's been um, some raids in terms of possible terrorist links. And somehow the school always gets connected because somebody's brother or somebody's cousin has been uh, has had paid a visit to the police. Um, the enrollments are dropping. Uh, the boys are not really taking their work seriously. They've been in the news um, in on every single news channel, um, and they've reached the point of possibly no return. Well, if there's another fight within the school grounds, and it gets media coverage with bad press, as you say, talking about out-of-control, homegrown terrorists. But the boys talk about vultures and ghetto birds. What are they? (laughs) Some slang terms around my area to refer to the helicopters that are constantly flying over. We call them ghetto birds and the vultures. Uh, The sometimes relentless media and reporters who just sort of won't leave you alone. So there's a new principal being appointed to this school, Mr Archie, and he's described by the boys as a gangster with manners. How is he different to the past principal? Uh, So basically he's much younger. (laughs) I think that's the first thing. Um, And he's also uh, a no-nonsense type of principal. I think in the past they've been able to get away with what they want and what they like. And this is the first principal to come along and put his foot down and go, it's my way or the highway. And there are now consequences to their actions. Well, there's a group of boys. They call themselves the Wolf Pack and they've been best friends forever. Tariq Nader is leader of the Wolf Pack. Well, tell us, what's he like? He's actually based on me. <laughs> so Tariq is, uh, has a lot of potential, like a lot of these young boys that I've mentored, um, however, lacks, I guess, sometimes motivation and direction and believes that his good looks and his wit can get him so far. But like, like I said, this new principal is a no-nonsense type of principal and he's for the first time, has to face his potential and um, he can't take the back seat anymore. So there's Tariq Nader, he's almost like their little, their older brother, I guess. And then there's um, Ibi, uh, short for Ibrahim Nasser. Um, he is uh, the cook in the, in the group. He loves anything and everything with food and the teachers bribe him to tell them what's going on around the school by buying him a falafel sandwich. And then there's PJ, who's the tall, mighty, the gentle giant, as I'd like to call him, who sort of plays music to sort of calm himself. And then there's Hus, Hussein Hader, who's Tariq's closest friend, best friend, um, who's pretty much the the uh, troublemaker of the pack and always is getting into trouble with Tariq, sometimes trying to bail him out. Well, the wolf pack are always welcome at Tariq's home as their lies, and for different reasons, 
aren't as stable as Tarek's. So who's in Tarek's family? So Tarek's family is based on my own family with the same names. Uh, so we have mum and dad, and then we have uh, Abdul and Saf, and then we have Fida and Amira, all my brothers and sisters in real life as well. Um, and they provide stability um, and a place of safety for these wolfpack to come and sort of enjoy themselves. And I guess uh, the mother who's the, who's the center of the, of the family and who holds the family together sort of brings people with uh, food. And so there's always food at Tarek's home and there's always a place to sleep, a place to stay and a place to, I guess, enjoy themselves. Have you got an Uncle Charlie that brings a sense of embarrassment to you? Again, Uncle Charlie is a real character um, who also um, makes uh, honey. <laughs> he's a beekeeper. So it's I definitely have an Uncle Charlie who thinks that he's the strongest man in the world and always has a story to tell at any, any public gathering or any family function. <laughs> well, some of the delightful writing uh, in this book is about the way Tarek describes the family life, from the problems of sharing a bedroom to the bribes involved in getting into the bathroom first. Then there's the entourage that goes to the airport and especially the barbecuing of food under the pergola in the backyard. How important is food in Lebanese life? I don't think there's such thing as a family without food. It is what brings us together. It is what uh, makes us, uh, I guess, communicate and interact with one another. It's the centre of our gatherings. There is no such thing as entering an Arab's home without the mother cooking a feast to sort of uh, feed a whole village. There's um, there's no such thing as sandwiches or finger foods or spring rolls. Um, Arab parents think that's just just something that we just don't do. And if there's not a, a fried chicken somewhere or roast chicken in the back, then it's not a gathering. Um, food is something that brings people together, and it's also also used in the in the story to break down any stereotypes and any hostility towards one another. Um, I think if you can eat together then you, and enjoy each other's company, then I think you can grow and learn from one another. Well, let's get back to school. They did a photo shoot to rebrand the school image and that didn't work very well, did it? <laughs> no, to say the least. I mean, this school is, like I said, at its, at its end and is trying every possible way to, to keep this school open and I thought a photo or a publicity stunt almost as a photo shoot can show these kids in a new light but it fails and it backfires. <laughs> so what's the initiative that the new principal Mr Archie wants to bring in? Uh, because they only have a term and a half so a short turnaround to really change people's minds and opinions about this school and to keep it open he thinks that the fastest way to to I guess have a more positive view of the school is to create a rugby league competition but it's a little bit different because it's not within the teams are not made up with people that they know and so he thinks getting two worlds that really don't connect anymore uh, Punchbowl and Cronulla and, th and he thinks that this is not only going to be a talking point in the media, but it's also a point of change. And maybe if they can play sport together, um, they can rebrand and help the school image. Now, I assume, Rara, that you've chosen Cronulla because of the Cronulla rides. Just what's gone in true history of uh, Sydney suburbs up there. 
Yes, I, I think, you know, as a teacher, as a mentor and as a writer, I sort of haven't read anything about the Cronulla riots in uh, YA. And I think it's really important to address uh, the Cronulla riots, but rather not make it the centre of the book. It's just a stepping stone to moving forward. So there's boys from Punchbowl, boys from Cronulla, which is quite a social divide. And one of them has to be captain. Tariq and Aaron from Cronulla are so different in so many ways. What are some of their differences? Oh, pretty much everything. Um, they come from different families, different worlds, different social groups, different class status. One is what Aaron comes from a family of money and prestige, and Tariq comes from a family, uh, uh, I guess, a world of of family and uh, brothers and sisters. Aaron is the only child where Tariq has uh, five siblings and he has both his parents. Aaron uh, doesn't have that. Oh, sorry, the similarity is that they're both really good at, at footy um, mm. and so they compete for this captain position. And the other boys and, in the Cronulla team? Yes, so we have Riley and we have Lee and we have Matt who are also from Cronulla and uh, they have to help, I guess, Aaron sort of try to become captain as well as the Wolfpack try to help Tarek become captain. So even though they're part of the same team, they sort of, they're still a divide. Well, a successful rugby team needs to play as a group. And what are they told that one of the skills of a good captain is? A good captain leads by example and communicates. Uh, and so through various programs uh, within the school, they have to prove that they can be the leader that these boys turn to. Well, communicating. Are teenage boys good at talking about their problems? No. <laughs> to, say, to, to put it simply, no, they are absolutely not. <laughs> As a team participation meeting, they're asked to share something about themselves. But even then, they're not really comfortable about this. There's a quote from the book, there's the tough guy or the funny guy never the broken guy. And when they confront a bully like Hunter, what would they rather do than talk about it? Well, they'd rather take matters in their own hands and, and deal, with, deal with Hunter like they do with a lot of things uh, physically and through sometimes, unfortunately, through violence and trying to get back. They think revenge is the only way to sort of get one on top as the, the young boys tell me we have to get one on top of him it's almost like there's a race that they have to always sort of be better than the other and so they believe that a, a, a prank that's it's not going to turn out quite nicely but is the way to sort of get back at hunter so Tarek's relationship with his friends are, are tested but he also has to learn to control his own anger and find what it takes to be a leader and you know Tarek thinks he's got it all life sorted out you know he's popular but who is it that challenges the way he thinks about girls I think initially it's his this love interest named Jamila and she sort of challenges challenges everything that he knows about women and in girls yeah he, he's he has to rethink his selfish sexual behaviour, especially when he, he belittles his sister for not being married and his aunt for her Botox used. 
You know, at home, his outspoken ways have brought him into conflict with his family, but laughs about the Arab gossip women hotline. But then how does he react when he hears Aaron talk rudely to his mother? Let Aaron know that that's wrong because his mother is somebody he just um, doesn't speak to that way. And so he believes that it's only his mother that cannot, that cannot be spoken that way. Look, as well as humour, there are confronting issues of family disengagement. But I, I thought it was interesting. You've made the lead character a boy, not a girl, as you said before. So it was your own behaviour, as well as some of your brother's behaviour that went into this book. Yes, definitely. And also because I was highly encouraged not to write a book for boys uh, because the market is for girls and nobody... Boys don't read. And so I thought to challenge that and to to really make a, a point that, you know, if if boys don't, we can't say boys don't read, we still have to give them something worth reading. And so that's the reader that you've intended for this book. But I must say, from poetry slams to rugby games, I know I may not have been the intended reader, but I thoroughly enjoyed this book. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. What did your family think about being part of this book? Well, they didn't know. <laughs> Until it was just before it was published, I was like, and by the way, you are characters in my book and I've used your real names, so please don't sue me. They thought it was, they thought it was awesome. I mean, they were really interested in Keen when they uh, sort of understand or really know how their sister thought about them <laughs> which was pretty interesting uh, but they've been my number one supporters and they've been absolutely incredible. Now in the acknowledgement at the back of the book you mentioned something about the red line under names in Microsoft Word. Here's to our names being permanently added to the dictionary. I didn't really know what you meant until I tried it. <laughs> yes. You certainly have a point there, don't you? Uh, try to write a 100,000-word book with names that Microsoft does not recognise. It was really, it got uh, very tedious, right-clicking and trying to be like, these names exist, come on, you need to see us. And so I just thought it would be funny if I just put that at the end. Here's to us sort of being added to dictionary, no, no red lines anymore. What can teenage boys learn about themselves from playing sport? Lots especially in Ruam Arj's amusing and insightful novel, The F Team. Thank you very much, Ruam. Thank you very much. And now it's David's turn. There is nothing quite so fraught as family. S.L. Lim, however, has added to this mix the notions of gender and culture in her novel, Revenge. So S.L., welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Now, our protagonist in this novel is Yani. Now, her place in the family is compromised by her gender and certain cultural imperatives and expectations. What can you tell us about her? There's been a lot of focus on gender, and I think that that's absolutely a valid interpretation, but it's not actually my necessarily primary focus. So, yes, Yanni is a woman and she is denied certain opportunities within her immediate nuclear family because, or in part because, she's a woman. 
But there's also other dynamics at play. So there's other characters in the novel, such as her young niece, Kat, for instance, who in many ways is similar to Yanni, but lives on a different side of the border and who has access to a certain amount of money and therefore a certain amount of opportunity and room to dream, which Yanni is denied. You actually connect these to Yanni and Kat. There's that image of them both having a blood nose at some stage, which unites the two of them across time. Do you know what, David? I did not realise I'd done that. Thank you for pointing it out to me. That's actually really cool. What you've got there, I mean, you've mentioned gender, but it does cross time and it does cross the cultural barriers. But Yanni comes from a particular cultural setting, which adds to this dynamic and attitude towards gender as well. When you draw attention to someone's cultural setting or someone's race or or whatever, that is always done in relation to someone else. So in my first novel, Real Differences, I was very interested in exploring how people who are racialized as Asian are, you know, are, are seen and have access to certain experiences and certain certain forms of oppression relative to people who are white. But in this book, I specifically, every major character in this book, in fact, almost every speaking character, comes from a similar cultural setting. So everyone, so, so, so it really, it, it's the water that everyone's swimming in. And so this book, I would say, is not so much exploring that particular cultural setting, which is only a cultural setting in relation to other cultural settings, as it is exploring particular kinds of dynamics within a family and within people who have, I guess, desires which are normative within the family and desires which are not normative. Which is what makes this book interesting because really the dynamic comes down to Yanni and Shan, her brother, and sibling rivalries, which in fact sibling rivalry is non-cultural in many ways. It occurs in every setting. Yes. So I think sibling rivalry is, is, is something which people of any kind of background can probably at least have some experience of. And I think also just, yeah, this idea, I suppose, of, of the people within a family whose desires are normative in the sense that, you know, Shan wants to make money. Shan wants to have his own biological family. Shan is doing the things which propagate, you know, the family, whereas Yanni is not. And so Shan has access to a kind of a kind of love and care and security, which Yanni does not. But in many ways, what is imposed on Yanni is a responsibility for looking after her parents, yes, an expectation yes. that she will stay in the household. She's denied yes, opportunity. She's absolutely. denied the opportunity to express her sexuality. Yes. 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 I guess I'm interested, or in in this novel in particular, I was interested in the idea of someone who refuses to scale her desires to her circumstances. So Yanni is someone who wants absolutely everything. She wants pleasure. She wants love. She wants love of a particular kind, which is queer love, and which is queer both in the sense of, you know, women being with women, but also in the sense of it's a love which isn't necessarily expressed in the form of, you know, settling down, being in a couple, having children, having having a family unit, that sort of self-contained form. And so she's denied these things and that becomes the engine of the plot because, you know, you can be denied something and you can integrate that into your expectations of the world and reach a kind of emotional resolution with that. And Yanni, for better or for worse, 
refuses to acquiesce to that. Well, there are those that do acquiesce in some ways. So the focus of her interest as a young woman is Xu Ying, someone she um, basically admires for her entire life. But because this novel spans a lifetime, so to speak, she meets up with Xu Ying again at the end. And Xu Ying's compromised herself in many ways. She's married. uh, She is uh, subscribing to Christianity, but still has this desire to express that other side of herself. Yes. So I suppose there's that tension, you know, no matter what, no matter what compromise you make and no matter what choice you make, the road that you didn't take and the desires which you did not fulfill will exert some kind of power over your consciousness and your choices. But in some ways, Yanni is denied a lot of these choices because of certain expectations, which you could suggest are cultural and are gender-based. They absolutely are. Yeah, they are cultural and they are gender-based. I just, I suppose, I don't know how meaningful it is to say that any set of expectations is cultural. All expectations exist within a culture. And so when you say cultural, I'm not speaking about necessarily you in particular, David, but I think that in a lot of cases, people are using cultural as a synonym for not white. And so I want to push back against the idea that racialized persons exist in a uniquely cultural way. What you're saying is that, yes, they exist in every culture, which is quite true. The expectations are on gender, on responsibility. Yes, yes. Over the arc, then, of the novel, you're looking at how things also change in time as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think one of the cool things about about Yanni, which is also quite a destructive thing, is yeah, her failure to moderate moderate her desires to her circumstances. And so she's basically, you know, she she she's against absolutely everything. She's against capitalism, she's against heterosexuality, and she's also kind of against linear time. It's this refusal to acquiesce to loss over time. And I just realized that that was not actually the question that you asked. I just wanted to say the thing about linear time. Across time, in some ways, Yanni becomes a little more conservative because she finds herself tutoring Kat, her niece, but giving her what might be considered conservative advice. Yes. Kat is a sort of almost like a counterfactual version of Yanni. So like Yanni, she's very gifted. Like Yanni, she has a lot of capacity for desire, but she is living on a different side of a border and she's living in economic circumstances where the capacity to actualize that desire is very different. And so Yanni looks at Kat with this mixture of identification and admiration and, yes, love, but also resentment and also, to a certain extent, to Yanni, Kat seems like an innocent. Kat does not quite understand in the way Yanni does that the world can break you. Kat doesn't understand that poverty can break you and that these things are, are not just theoretical but actual. So Yanni finds herself both wanting to encourage Kat in her capacity to dream, but also wanting to pull her back from this sort of ledge which she imagines that Kat is wandering towards. Well, you need a basis from which to support yourself is basically Yanni's 
advice yes, to Kant. Yes, yes. And yet Yane's perspective on this as well reflects her own material and economic circumstances, which are quite different from Kat. So, you know, Yanni is poor. Yanni does not come from a family which has the resources or the desire to support her. And Yanni lives on a different side of a border and in a context where the sort of basic level of society, wealth, access to welfare, access to, you know, the consequences of things going wrong are so much bigger for Yanni than for Kat. But also then, Shan, her brother, has basically usurped her wealth, her position, her opportunity. And this then brings us in some ways to the end of the novel because this is, there is a final confrontation, so to speak, hence the title of the novel, Revenge. Yes. But what you do stylistically is almost narrate things from an outer body experience. Yes. You basically add to the tension because now the dynamic changes because you're stepping aside as if you're observing it from a distance or as if Yanni, who's been the narrator all the way through, is observing it from a distance, almost as a, a culmination of her life story. That is an excellent observation, and it ties in with something that someone else observed the other day. Both of these things were not things that I did deliberately or had observed for myself, um, which is that the book takes place with this intense interiority with Yanni's perspective, but that there's a couple of moments, such as the one you just mentioned, and also perhaps in the final passage in the book, where we step out of that perspective. And so... Maybe this movement back and forth between having this very concentrated subjectivity and then contextualizing that subjectivity. So this is an act of violence, which is a culmination of all kinds of psychic processes within Yanni and her relationship with her brother. And then we step out that and we see that this has ramifications outside of Yanni's particular subjective experience for how we think about revenge and how we think about families and how we think about all kinds of things. Well, the novel is called Revenge. The author is S.L. Lim. And if the listener and reader want to find out what the exact nature of the revenge is, what Yanni exacts as retribution for being denied opportunity because of her brother's behaviour, and Shan was a bit of a psychopath, they will have to read the novel. So S.L. Lim, the novel is Revenge, and it's actually released by Transit Lounge. So, S.L. Lim, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, David. It was a lovely conversation. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.